Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to perhaps the next to easiest chapter to locate in your Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, you go all the way to the right, and then maybe just a few pages back to the left, and you'll find that. Uh, last Sunday, we spent some time looking at the opening chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, uh, considering uh, a number of reasons why it is so important for us as Christians to know how it all began, why it is so critical for us to, to go back to Genesis and to take what it says there at face value, to go back to the infallible a record of the absolute beginning of all that we know that exists in our universe. To find out the origin of the order and the complexity that we see around us every day. Uh, to discover the origin of our solar system. To, to discover the origin of life itself. To find out where man came from and what separates us as human beings from uh, animals as we're made in the image of God. To learn about the concepts and the beginnings of, of marriage and the home and uh, the family unit. Uh, to read Genesis 1 and to be overwhelmed with the glory and the majesty of God as he reveals himself as the almighty creator who is all-powerful, self-sufficient, separate from his cre- creation, yet caring and involved and able to guard and to keep and and, and eager to bless his creatures. And to see how these themes in, themes in Genesis are to be a significant theme of our worship of God. And to see how these themes become a starting point in our conversations with unbelievers in the same way that the Apostle Paul presented the case of Christianity before the pagan philosophers in Athens in Acts chapter 17, beginning with the doctrine of God as creator. Well, all of these things are just some of the reasons why we need to, t- to stake our very lives on Genesis 1. And, and some of the ways that uh, this chapter of the Bible sets the stage for the rest of the story and shapes our worldview and the way that we view reality and make sense of our life and the world around us. Well, this morning, rather than go back to the beginning, we are going to the end. Or rather than considering the introduction or the prologue of the Bible, we are going to the conclusion, uh, to the book of Revelation, which is a section of Scripture that deals with the events that precede and surround and follow after the second coming of Christ. And interestingly, this, this matter of the, the personal, uh, visible, and bodily, resur- bodily return of Christ much like the doctrine of biblical creationism, has also been mocked and ridiculed, and yet this promise has formed the very core of Christian expectation. Uh, It is, as Paul says in in his letter to Titus, it is the church's blessed hope. It is our longing. It is the great climax of salvation history, a time of redemption for for believers and yet a time of judgment for God's enemies. It's about the inauguration of Christ's earthly kingdom and the church's reign with Him in holiness. It's about the hope of the bodily resurrection and spiritual reward and a righteous world system. All of these things 
are tied to the return of Jesus, an event that has brought comfort to Christians for centuries going all the way back to the times of the early church. But as I said, many have discounted this teaching. Uh, They have discounted the importance of the return of Christ. Some have even uh, completely denied its reality. Uh, Even in the church, there have been those who have uh, minimalized or have altered Jesus' promise. There are those who are cynics. There are those who have crept in, false teachers. Uh, but, But we know this isn't new, right? In fact, the Apostle Peter dealt with this problem in his own day. And he addressed this in, in the epistle, his second epistle, 2 Peter, in chapter 3, verse 3, Peter writes this. He says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. False teachers flat out rejecting the reality of Jesus's second coming, ridiculing the righteous flaunting, as Peter would say, their own immorality, undermining the church's confidence in this doctrine, uh, making hope-filled Christians out to be uh, silly and uninformed, denying the prediction of the Old Testament prophets as well as the New Testament apostles and even Jesus himself. And it comes as no surprise, as Peter says here, that these individuals who deny the second coming of Christ also deny God's divine involvement and intervention throughout world history, most notably opposing both the six-day creation of Genesis 1 and the global flood described in chapters 6 through 9 of Genesis. So, we, we turn to this final book, known as The Revelation of Jesus Christ, because it is first and foremost about the unveiling, about the, the disclosure of Jesus in glory. Uh, it, it is about Him. It is about His final victory. And the things concerning that final victory that the rest of Scripture may merely allude to, those things become clearly visible in this particular book. Now, as many of you know, this book was written by the, the Apostle John in the last decade of the first century during his exile on the island of Patmos after he had received a series of visions that laid out the future history of the world. And all that John experienced and saw and, and recorded wasn't just for his own sort of intellectual stimulation. It was a message for the church. In fact, it was a message that was meant to be delivered and circulated to the seven churches in Asia Minor where John had previously ministered. And it was meant to be for them a message of hope during a time of growing persecution from without and rising threats from within. And the general message was this, that God is in control of all the events of human history. God is in control of all the events of human history. 
And even though evil seems to be pervasive and and even though wicked men at times seem to prevail, their ultimate doom is certain and Jesus will come in glory to judge and to rule. Now, as I've already mentioned, Revelation is primarily about the person of Jesus Christ, but it also tells us a lot about uh, eschatology, or, or we refer to as the doctrine of the last things, uh, particularly beginning in chapter 4 and running through the first part of uh, chapter 22. Uh, in these chapters, we learn about what will happen before the return of Christ. Uh, we learn about the things that surround uh, what the Old Testament writers referred to as the final day of the Lord. Uh, we learn about the events of the tribulation. We we learn about the final political setup of the world during this time. We, we, we learn about the career of the Antichrist. We, we learn about the, the seven seal judgments and the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bowl judgments that are unleashed on the earth. And we learn about the coming of Christ itself. We learn about the overthrow of the Antichrist and the false prophet. Uh, We learn about the fact that Jesus will come to occupy the throne of David, to establish his thousand-year messianic kingdom, during which the Scripture says Satan is bound. Uh, This is an an earthly kingdom that will be characterized based on a number of Old Testament passages as well as the details of of Revelation as a a, a kingdom of uh, characterized by harmony and justice and peace and righteousness and long life. Uh, Nevertheless, a kingdom that will draw to a close with the release of Satan. And when this happens, the scripture says that Satan will deceive the nations of the earth and gather them for battle against the saints, And at which time Satan and his army will be devoured by fire from heaven, and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Then the scripture says that the souls and and the resurrected bodies of the lost will be united, and all unbelievers will appear at what Revelation refers to as the great white throne judgment. They will be judged, they will be cast into hell, the lake of fire, and committed to an eternal conscious punishment and cut off from the life of God forever. But the redeemed, the people of God, those who are saved, will enter the eternal state of glory with God, after which the elements of this earth are to be dissolved and replaced with a new earth. So heaven and earth essentially will pass away. Uh, The entire universe will be uncreated, uh, not by any naturalistic scenario, but solely by God's omnipotent intervention. His power will consume everything in the material realm. The entire present universe will cease to exist and will be replaced by a completely new heaven and earth. And then in Revelation 21, it says there that the heavenly city will come down out of heaven and will be the dwelling place of the saints, where they will enjoy forever fellowship with God and with one another. And our Lord Jesus, having fulfilled His redemption, redemptive plan, or redemptive mission, will then deliver up the kingdom to his Father that in all spheres the triune God may reign forever and ever. Now, that's a lot. 
that's sort of the, uh, the, the, the high-altitude flyover of Revelation chapter 1 to the first part of Revelation uh, 22. And we could certainly spend uh, all of our time just unpacking some of the details of these things. I, and I certainly encourage you to, to search these things out. But for our purpose this morning, I would like for you to follow along as I read only the final portion of this book, uh, picking up with verse 6 of chapter 22. It's beginning in verse 6 of chapter 22. Verse 6 says, And he, and just, just to note that the he here is, is one of the seven uh, angels that brought uh, the, the judgments, the bold judgments, uh, the seven plagues. So it's just one of those angels that says, And he said to me, John, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Now behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Last Sunday, again, we looked at Genesis 1 and the importance of knowing how it all began. And today I would like to examine these last words and consider the importance of knowing how it all will end. The importance of knowing how it all will end. What can we learn from this final chapter of Revelation? And why is it so critical for us to know what it says and to be prepared to stand with confidence again and conviction in the face of all that we are experiencing in our Christian lives? Let me give you several reasons why, as believers, it is so critical for us to know how it all will end, or or maybe several uh, reasons, five uh, specifically, five reasons why we should stake our very lives. Be a very similar outline to our message last week, but five reasons why we should should stake our very lives and our future on the truth of Revelation chapter twenty-two. And the first is simply this, because it indicates some very important things about Scripture. 
because it indicates some very important things about Scripture. And the first thing that it tells us is that Scripture is reliable. Scripture is reliable. John begins his conclusion in verse 6 and says, And he, the angel, said to me, These words are faithful and true. Which doesn't simply refer to what the angel had led John to witness only in chapter 1 and up through the first five verses of chapter 22. It's actually uh, a confirmation concerning all that John has witnessed throughout this entire experience. And you'll notice what the angel says, that, that they, that all of the words of this prophecy are faithful and true. In other words, they are reliable and they are sincere, and they are as reliable and as sincere as the one who ultimately revealed them to John, none other than in God himself. So it's simply saying here that these words are the true words of God, and they are reliable in the same way that God himself is faithful and true and reliable and trustworthy. So Scripture is reliable, which brings us to the second thing that we learn about the Scripture, and that is that Scripture is God's Word. Scripture is God's Word. Verse 6, after saying these words are faithful and true, it says, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show to His bondservants the things which must soon take place. In other words, the message of Revelation is genuine a prophecy that comes from God himself and from Christ. Uh, now, in this particular case, God used an angel as a means of communication with John, who was a genuinely commissioned prophet. And yes, John used his intellect, God, John used his cognitive faculties, if you will, and penned the prophecy. But John's faculties were subjected to God. They were enlightened and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what this verse says is nothing short of a claim for the full and complete inspiration of this particular book, Revelation. And this is exactly what Peter was getting at in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he said this in verse 20, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, what did Peter mean by this? Well, he simply meant that no prophecy of the Scripture originates or arises as the result of any private determination. Or translated maybe a little more freely, Peter might say it this way, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture originates in the prophet's own understanding of things. In other words, the biblical authors were not controlled by or ruled by the musings of their own intellect. Their intellect was used... Uh, God used the reasoning and God used the intellect of the human authors in the process of inspiration, but the writers were not ruled by such things. And that what came out was not the result of their own thoughts and their own reflections or their own interpretation. 
So the biblical authors were not controlled by or ruled by the musings of their own intellect, nor, Peter says, was this process an act of human will. Verse 21. In other words, the biblical authors were moved by the Lord and not the autonomy of the human will. They were not autonomous from the sovereign plan of God to reveal himself accurately and clearly. So when you put these two verses together, what you basically have is a guarantee that you cannot have a document that contains error. Human musings could not infect or corrupt the revelation, and human will could not override God's divine purposes. Therefore, Scripture isn't some recording of the musings and the cognition and the thought and the understanding of the insight of man. It did not originate in any determination on man's part. And it, and it, and it isn't the expounding of man's views, but as Peter writes, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In other words, the Spirit of God moved. The Spirit of God drove men along like a ship or or like a strong wind driving a ship, using their intellect, using the vehicle of human language and using human culture so that they would pin exactly what God wanted to speak. They spoke from God or they spoke out from God. This is what God has done. He has embedded revelation in the words of human language and used the human authors to write exactly what he wanted them to write. That is Peter's point. That this is not about men deciding to write about their own ideas or what they thought. This is about the Holy Spirit taking hold of them, giving them a message and carrying them along as they wrote and put it down on record so that the end product would be pure and clear and would convey exactly and perfectly what God intended for it to convey. And in the case of the book of Revelation, yes, it involved John. In fact, in verse 8 of of chapter 22, John even declares that he is the one that he heard and he saw these things. But ultimately... God is the one that told him, and God is the one that showed him, and God is the one that guaranteed that what John wrote down was the very word of God. Now, another thing that we glean from Revelation 22 is the idea that Scripture is meant to be heeded. Scripture is meant to be heeded. Verse 7, blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. You'll notice that it, that it is Jesus that pronounces this beatitude, and it's one that reflects, as well as anything, the distinctly practical purpose of revelation, which simply means that if, if we truly understand and we truly believe the book of Revelation, then we ought to be growing in godliness. That, that is really the test of do we understand and do we believe the book of Revelation, this past week, I, I, I tried to just start at a Revelation 1 and just read all the way through it. And I'll, I'll admit it's a difficult thing to do because you keep stopping. <laughs> you, you go two or three verses and you're like, well, what is that? And how does that connect with this? And man, that's interesting. And you get, you, it's very easy to get sidetracked. But the question is, 
are we growing in godliness? Because that's the purpose of a prophecy. That's why we're, we're, we're supposed to be heeding the words of the prophecy of this book. I mean, if, we're, if, we're, if we are really... Uh, if we really are living in anticipation of Christ's promised return, then that ought to lead to greater spiritual zeal. That ought to lead to uh, greater faithfulness and obedience, knowing that we will soon give an account to our Master. I mean, that's essentially what, what John said in 1 John 3, 3, that this is a purifying hope, a purifying hope. But you know what happens when we forget about the second coming, right? And begin focusing on the things of the world. We, we become absorbed in the, in the temporal. We grow apathetic. And we grow cold towards the things that matter for eternity. Listen, our, our daily conduct needs to be consistent with our hope. Living in keeping with our Christian hope. Living in view of the eternal blessings thinking about future reward and divine accountability, knowing that our sins are forgiven, but pursuing practical purity and integrity, proclaiming the good news, continuing in the ministry of reconciliation, seeking to reach others with the life-giving truth of the gospel, being spiritually perceptive and doctrinally stable, growing in grace, worshiping Christ. That's what it means to heed the book of Revelation. Heeding the book of Revelation means coming away from it longing for Christ's return. Coming away from it longing for Christ's return. Loving Christ more. Seeking to be more like Him. Hoping for our resurrection bodies. Anticipating our eternal rewards. Understanding the fearful judgments that await non-believers and calling them to repentance and saving faith. In Christ. Another one. Scripture is meant to be shared. Scripture is meant to be shared. Verse 10. And the angel said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, here the angel tells John that it was vital for the book, or be translated the scroll, to remain open for all to read and not to be sealed up as John was commanded to do, it, to, commanded to do at one point back in chapter 10, verse 4. So he's, he's being told not to seal up the words of the prophecy. Uh, he was not to, to seal up his book as God uh, commanded Daniel to do in Daniel chapter 8 and in Daniel chapter 12. Because in Daniel's context and in his situation, Daniel's prophecies looked away to a distant fulfillment. But in John's case, his apocalypse was written to meet an immediate crisis facing the churches in Asia Minor. And the availability of this volume to, to people in those churches would allow them to read its contents and study its, its mysteries and uh, that it might have a direct impact on the way that they lived. So the message of the apocalypse is not to be hidden. It is a message to be proclaimed, uh, a message to, 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 lead, to, to lead to and to produce obedience and worship. Even from a different angle, the fact that the specific words of Revelation are not to be sealed up also stresses again that there is no hidden, no hidden secret meaning apart from the normal sense of the text. 
If the truth is not clear in those words, then this command is essentially nonsense. And if the plain, normal understanding of the words of Revelation does not convey the meaning that God intended for its readers to grasp, then the words are in a way sealed up. So just, just an encouragement for us in the way that we even, even approach this particular book of the Bible. The scripture is meant to be shared, and then Revelation 22 also indicates that Scripture is not to be tampered with. Scripture is not to be tampered with. Verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. The, the idea is, is straightforward, that, that the substance of the book is not to be altered in any way. Actually, believers are, are called to, to guard and to protect the book of Revelation. It, it is to be defended against those who deny its relevance. It is to be defended against critics who deny its, its authority and interpreters who obscure its meaning. In fact, all of Scripture really is to be guarded in this way. All of Scripture is to be handled with care and respect and precision, uh, not sloppily or, or in a haphazard manner. Uh, finally, we learn from, this, from these same verses, verses 18 and 19, that Scripture is complete. Scripture is complete. In other words, the commands in these verses terminate any further prophecies that might arise through other prophets or prophetesses which makes sense because Revelation became the final book of the New Testament canon. So there, there is nothing else to come prophetically. The gift of prophecy has terminated because, because the need for it has gone away. And the canon has been closed. After Revelation, there was and there is no more room for inspired messages. And these verses serve not only as a warning to the would-be prophets themselves who might try to continue their prophetic ministries beyond the time of the writing of Revelation, but notice it's also a warning to everyone who hears. Everyone who hears. It's a, it's a warning to us. It's a warning to us who at times uh, must be willing to refuse any authority that challenges the divine authority or the divine accuracy or the finality of this prophecy. All of these things about the Scriptures we learn from Revelation 22, and they are absolutely critical. Now, a second reason why we should stake our lives on Revelation 22 is because it so clearly reveals the character of Christ. It so clearly reveals the character of Christ. What do we learn about Christ in this chapter? Well, we learn several things. Uh, we learn first about his deity. We learn about the, the deity of Christ. In verse 13, Jesus proclaimed this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's, it's really th three, three descriptions, or if you will, three, three titles. Jesus says, uh, I, am, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those were simply uh, words that represent the symbols that form the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's, 
Interestingly, it's also a title for God the Father in the book of Revelation, which means that this is a, for Jesus to say this, he's, he's essentially claiming that he's equal with God. So he claims that title for himself, and the, and the, and the title simply means, I, I, it's as if he's saying, I am, I am he from whom all existence, all being, all existence, everything that exists, I am from whom all of that has proceeded and to whom it will return. Then Jesus adds to that and says this, I am the first and the last. We would say it this way. He is the first cause. He is the primal cause and the final aim of all of history. And he is the beginning and the end, also used as a title for God in chapter 21, verse 6. Simply means that Jesus is the one who has created the world and who will perfect it. It's as if Jesus is saying, Whatever I start, I finish. Whatever I start, I finish. It, 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 just, it, it reminds me of Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Whatever Jesus begins, he will finish because he is infinite, eternal, and his life transcends all limitations. He is God. So we learn about his deity. We also learn about his authority You'll notice in verse 12 that he is the one qualified to reward each person. Behold, I am coming quickly, he says, and my reward is with me. It's, you, could, you could think of that phrase when he says, my reward is with me. It's as if he's saying that the reward belongs to me and it is mine to give. So my reward is with me. It is a reward that I own, that that belongs to me, and I have the prerogative to dispense it to whom and when I want to give it away. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Then in verse 16, he says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Now, assuming that the angel that Jesus is referring to here is the same angel in verse 6, he would basically be claiming that what God does, he also does. Because in in verse 6, the angel said that he was commissioned by God. But here Jesus says that he has commissioned this angel. Simply stated, he has ultimate authority. He has the authority of God himself. And Jesus, in this verse, ties his claim to his, his, his authority to his claim to Messiahship. So we learn about his deity, we learn about his authority, and we learn about his Messiahship. He continues in verse 16 and says, I am the root and the descendant of David, which is an astonishing statement because what Jesus is basically claiming is to be both the ancestor of David and the descendant of David. Both the ancestor and the descendant. Only the God-man could, do, could, could be both. In essence, he, he is the beginning and the end of the economy associated with David, and therefore he fulfills all of the messianic promises associated with David's family which gives him the authority, which gives him the right to inaugurate the kingdom 
promised to David. And then he finishes by saying this, I am the bright morning star. Figuratively speaking, after he has brought judgment, after Christ has brought judgment, he will also be the bright star before the sunrise. He is the one that will bring in the perfect day of God that follows after the day of the Lord and the day of wrath. His coming will announce the end of the darkness of humanity's night in the glorious dawn of his kingdom. This is the glorious nature and the character of Christ. Why Revelation 22? Well, number three, because it highlights the centrality of Christ's return. It highlights the centrality of Christ's return. Now, I won't spend much time here, but, but, I, but I do think it's significant that the soon coming without delay of the Lord Jesus Christ is stated three times in this passage. Now, certainly the coming of Christ, again, the, the second advent, uh, it, it, it's woven all throughout the book of Revelation. But I find it interesting that here in the conclusion, not only of Revelation, but in the conclusion of the Bible itself, we find this threefold emphasis. Verse 7, Jesus says, And behold, I am coming quickly. Verse 12, again, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. And then John writes in verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Each one of these statements speaking of the imminent personal advent of Jesus. And not one of them has already taken place. They are all still future. So as, as John is writing this at the end of the first century, these are, Jesus is saying, I am going to do this. I am going to come. I am going to return. My return is imminent. The time is near. Number four, why is Revelation, Revelation 22 so important? Because it reminds us of the irreversible status of the saved and the lost. It reminds us of the irreversible status of the saved and the lost. At the end of verse 10, the angel says, For the time is near, verse 11, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Now, there's clearly a tone of, of irony in all four parts of this verse that the angel is certainly not commanding people to sin. He's not saying, hey, if you guys who are committing sin, you just, you just keep sinning. I'm commanding you to do that. But the idea is this. The time is short, so let people go their own way, which is just another way of expressing the hopelessness of the final state of the wicked. You see, this is a powerful warning against putting off one's decision to become a faithful follower of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. The time remaining is short, and once it is up, no more opportunity to change remains. It is also possible that, that the angel is making this point, that the message of Jesus' imminent return goes out, it goes forth, and until the fulfillment of these, of these prophecies transpires, there won't be any widespread change. The wise will respond with faithfulness and live their lives in readiness for Jesus' coming, and the foolish will reject this message and choose the wrong lifestyle and consequently reap divine judgment. In other words, there comes a time 
when people make certain choices and their choices inevitably affect their character and their condition and ultimately seal their destiny for better or for worse. And there will be only two fixed spiritual states. And the two possible outcomes in verse 11 depend on what a person has done in this present life according to verse 12. Verse 12, he says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. And what are the two possible outcomes? Well, either eternal life in the presence of God or eternal condemnation and exclusion from God. Verse 14, blessed are those, and this should probably be viewed as, as, as Jesus still speaking here. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the, into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So there are only two groups. There are those who are allowed inside the heavenly city, those who wash their robes, those that according to chapter 7 and verse 14 have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Those who have, we would say, have repented and trusted in Jesus. Those who were, who were, de- who were defiled by sin but have been purified and forgiven. And then there are those who fail to qualify because they have never washed their robes. They are outside the wall of the holy city and have as their final destiny the lake of fire. And how does Jesus describe them? Well, he uses a number of, a number of categories. He refers to some of them as the dogs. In ancient times, dogs were, were not the domesticated household pets they are today. They, they were despised scavengers that, that milled about the city's garbage dumps. So to call a person a dog was to essentially describe them as, a, as someone of low character, uh, someone who, 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 is, who may be addicted to unnatural vices, those who might even be considered to be an abomination. Then he lists here the sorcerers, those engaged in occult practices and the drug abuse that often accompanies those practices, the immoral persons, those engaged in illicit sexual activities, the murderers, the idolaters, those who worship false gods or who worship the true God in a false way. And everyone, he says, who loves and practices lying. Those with an inclination, those with a proclivity towards falsehood. Not just those who do a lie, but those who love to lie. And this last phrase, I think, is really key because it's not all who have ever committed any of these sins who are excluded from heaven. Rather, it is those who love and who habitually practice any such sin, leading them to reject Christ as Lord and Savior. It's very similar to what John said in 1 John 3, 9, that when he made this statement that no one who is born of God practices sin. One final reason to love this chapter, because it holds out hope to those who are lost. Because it holds out hope to those who are lost. Verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Again, this is probably Christ still speaking. And what does he say? He says that the Holy Spirit 
speaking either directly or indirectly through the prophets, says, come. Because the Spirit has always longed to see Jesus exalted in beauty and splendor and power and glory and majesty. But the Holy Spirit isn't the only one who longs for Christ's return. Echoing His plea for Christ to come is the bride, the church. And the church on earth, as she awaits her redemption, says, come. Petitioning Christ and inviting His return. And everyone, it says, who hears this book read in the local assembly should repeat this call. Come, Lord Jesus. But notice the end of verse 17. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Who is Jesus speaking of here? Jesus is speaking of those, we might, we might describe them as those with a spiritual thirst. Uh, much like what Jesus describes in Luke chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those who recognize that they need a physician, that they're sick. These are people with a spiritual thirst. These are people with a strong sense of spiritual need. They know that they're sinners. They know that they're undone. They know that they have no hope apart from Christ and His righteousness. And what does He invite them to do? To come and to take. Not to be like those people in the, in, in, at the end of, of chapter 9 that refused to repent. And not to be like those men in chapter 16 verse 9 that blasphemed the name of God and refused to give Him glory but to take advantage of this provision of Christ while the door of mercy is still open. Well, there's so much more we could, that could be said about this, about this chapter. But listen, we, we need to know how it all began. We need to know how it all will end. We need to know that at the, begin, at the beginning uh, was not an impersonal chemical reaction or randomness or chance. And we need to know that at the end... There will not be an impersonal force and random or chance. But there is a throne. There is a throne. And on that throne, there is a sovereign God who rules the world. And Jesus Christ is coming again. And the reason that he hasn't returned yet isn't because God is indifferent or powerless or forgetful. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's because God is patient with sinners. He is patient with sinners and merciful. He is working everything precisely according to His perfect plan and schedule. And He has a vast capacity for storing up anger and wrath before it spills over into judgment. But Jesus will come. He will come to destroy His enemies, to vindicate His name, to reveal His glory, to establish His kingdom, and to shepherd His sheep. So, child of God, listen, there is no need for you to spend your life worrying. Rather, spend your life waiting, serving Christ and looking for Him. The future is not meaningless or ominous and empty. Your future is full and bright because it is a future with God. And if you are not a believer, you are in this book. You are in this book. Jesus addresses whoever is thirsty. 
whoever is thirsty. And my prayer and hope is that that's where you are today. And remember, I tell people that I counsel all the time, as long as, long as, you, as, there is, as there is life in you, as long as there is breath in your lungs, it is not too late to repent. It is not too late to repent and to turn to Christ. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, from Genesis to Revelation, from the very first verse to the very last, Lord, we have been reminded this morning of just how important that is, the word of God is in our lives to strengthen and to build us up and to edify us as believers. And Lord, reminded that it is the very word of God that converts the soul. Lord, we have also been reminded in various ways that Jesus is coming again. He is coming again. It is certain. It is sure. He is coming soon. He is coming quickly. My prayer is that we would all be ready. Those of us who know you, Lord, that we would be as Paul, that we would make it our ambition to please you, knowing that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Lord, for those who may be here that don't know you, we pray for them, Lord, that they would trust in the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb for cleansing and forgiveness, that they would turn away from their sin, that they would turn and trust to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And Lord, with all of our hearts, we cry, come, Lord Jesus, in his name, amen.